Hello and welcome back to Family Law, a case for children. Last episode, we had a discussion about our position and the aim of this podcast. Well, it's time to get back to our topic. We previously discussed Godstruck, who lived on the continent where during the medieval period, the Benedictine rules for monasteries were better adhered to than in England. There were a number of differences between England and the continent, and we will discuss a few. The differences would have implications for the oblates, but eventually change would come and monastic life would slowly reflect that of the continent. As mentioned previously, children were given as oblates to monasteries. Oblation meant a separation from parents, but on the continent, parents were prevented from visiting their children. These rules were more relaxed in Anglo-Saxon England. Visitation was allowed. Contact was not just beneficial for the children, but it also served the monasteries well due to the monetary benefit. So we have King Edward who visited his daughter at the convent and she was able to successfully successfully petition for a grant of land from her father for the convent. Allowing visitation was not an altruistic act, as we can see. We also have the fact that the continental oblates were predominantly aristocratic children. The monk Alderiacus wrote of medieval nobility. If any of them were lame, infirm, hard of hearing, short-sighted, they were offered to the monastery. Though the Carolinigan um, document stated that oblates had to be donated with a gift, as in the case of Godstruck. But by contrast, Viking raiders left monasteries in England with a deficit of personnel. And due to this shortage of recruits, King Alfred of Wessex, who reigned between 1871 to 1886, found a novel solution, taking children of foreign slaves and dedicating them to the monasteries to be raised in the monastic order. These slave children had no land or property to donate, but they were accepted. As the saying goes, you must give Jack his jacket, and Alfred did not like the idea of involuntary and irrevocable oblations. As a result, the children were not bound irrevocably to the monasteries. An argument can be made that the life of a foreign slave child was far better than the fate that they were originally destined for. They had food, shelter, clothing, and education. And although the sole intention here was not the welfare of the children, but rather the restocking of the monasteries, King Alfred, by extension, showed great sensitivity 
sensitivity, I do apologize. And as a result, the welfare of the slave children were achieved. As always, an argument can be made that the child would be separated from their parents. But I would like to believe that a reasonable, responsible adult would choose to have would rather would choose to give the child a chance of freedom um, irrespective of what it looked like and in this case it would be through the fostering of the monks rather than a life in slavery. The other result of King Alfred's slave oblates was that monasteries in England were not made of predominantly nobles unlike the continent. Within that period, it was quite notable in England that child oblates, especially the nobility, were not alone in that they were surrounded by their kin. As they were separated from their parents, having family, brothers and cousins around would have given a great emotional stability that a child would have lost had they had no contact with any of their family. The monasteries, as I mentioned earlier, were not strict in the application of monastic rules. Many of the monks in England were said to behave in an unmonastic manner. They owned private property. However, they should have taken a vow of poverty. They were married. They should have taken a vow of celibacy. And some did not actually live in the monasteries. There was condemnation by the Synod of Clofisho, 1746 to 1747, apologies for my pronunciation, of which um, the staging of races at religious festivals, fox hunting, and the keeping of jesters, among other infractions, were condemned. This lackadaisical rule-keeping meant that the oblates had a freedom to be children that the continental counterparts did not have. This, to some degree, benefited the welfare of the children, as the rigidity of monastic life would likely not have been a great issue under the current circumstances. I think I just said to you, under the current circumstances, we are not current, are we? This is past circumstances. So the statement should have been under such circumstances. The penitential of Theodore to all Catholic churches of England stated that a boy should be permitted to marry before 16 if he could not abstain. If he was already a monk and marries, he commits bigamy and shall do penance of a year. This rule shows that oblates in England had the option to marry, which by extension meant they had freedom which Gottschalk on the continent did not have. Even in the medieval era, to be able to get married meant you had to be free to do so. And although there was punishment attached, as stated earlier, it also meant that up to a point, 
they were able to function. The children were able to function as normal teenagers. Isn't that amazing? So we go to the part that the information about girls in all of this, um, when, as usual, not very extensive. They were given as oblates. So Edith, the daughter of King Edgar, confirmed her appointment to the church at a tender age of two. It's amazing, isn't it? At two years old, she could confirm her appointment. King Edward's daughter and many other girls were also given as oblates for the same reasons as the boys. However, if you were a man with many daughters and insufficient dowries, the possibility of the plainest and the one least likely to be married would be given to the church was quite high. This, all of this just goes to show, you know, at the end of the day, it was a way of giving the responsibility of the child, of raising the child of, to someone else. And up to a point, we can accept that, you know, if you had too many children or if it was hard going, because even in today's world, we have social services and we have places where parents can have respite from caring for their children for such for a period of time just so that they can get a breather. But this was the norm. This was not something that just happened on occasion so a parent can take a breath or have a break. This was a way of life. Now we have to consider that in at the time in the era, that was normal. So we cannot look at them and say, oh, how awful you were, because it was normal. However, we could just look at the way everything was done, um, if they put any policies in place or if they noticed anything was wrong that someone tried to fix it. And that is the crux of the matter here. So as we can see, as part of um, the fostering, oblation to the church was beneficial to the parents and the children because if they were not given to the church um, some of them would not have been educated. And remember, at the time, the monasteries were hub for so much, for writing, music, so many things. So a child who was there and was able would get one of the best educations possible. And also, it benefited the church because they would get personnel, they would get monks, people who would stay for a longer period of time. And even though alliances were made due to relationships developed in monasteries, the question that will always arise is whether or not the benefit outweighed the negative consequences. So as we conclude here on oblation, we can see that fostering in Anglo-Saxon England was common, and as a result, Oblation was just an extension of that system. In Anglo-Saxon England, because the rules of the Benedictine monk were not strictly adhered to, there was a possibility that not there would not be that widespread cruelty or rigidity 
that oblates were exposed to on the continent. When we look at the policy of King Alfred, we could see for the first time that someone saw that, um, or recognized that children could not yet choose good or reject evil because of the tenderness of the years. And as a result of that, of his decision, they waited for the boys to be a bit older, almost young men, I should say, before they took the monastic, monastic vow. We see that from King Alfred that not everyone accepted that oblation of a child should be irrevocable or involuntary. And provision was made to deal with the irrevocable part. But it can, can easily be argued that the other bit, which was the involuntary part, was not actually dealt with because a child would have to pass their entire childhood in the monastery without choice until they came to that point where they could choose whether or not that was when they were 16 or later on, but they would spend their entire childhood there and they would not have a choice. So the question is, was that involuntary part dealt with? But we do accept that he dealt with the irrevocable part. We can also conclude that due to the lackadaisical approach to the rules, some boys would not have been punished for many infractions. So one of them, for example, once again, we go back to the, the, the penitential of Theodore. It stated that he who defiles himself shall do penance for 40 days. And if he is a boy, he should have do penance for 20 days or be flogged. So we can conclude that in some cases, because of that lackadaisical rule keeping, that corporal punishment would not have been administered. The policies or situations to deal with the welfare of the children, apart from King Alfred, which we could see he, that was his intention, were not from any realization of the children's need, but rather from the failure to adhere to the rules. An argument also can be made that irrespective the children benefited, and I would completely and totally agree. The issue, however, is since it was not done consciously, it did not last. Reform would come. So, for example, King Edgar, who ruled from 959 to 975, supported the reforms which promoted celibacy and the daily routines according to St. Benedict, which we know with respect to children is very strict. From the above, all, all that was mentioned, we can conclude that there was a case to answer. We appreciate, I completely and totally appreciate here, that the times were different. But my question here is that if the adult monks found the rules too rigid because they got married, they owned property, 
um, if they found those rules too rigid, should allowances not have been made for the children? And my another question here is, where was the reasonable, responsible adult at that time? So this was a brief look on oblation in England. It could be more intense, um, extensive, but it's really brief. Just to get you to think and probably have a little discussion yourself or go have a read upon it. And I hope you do. However, this will not be our final look at oblation or fostering as it will be discussed in later episodes because it comes up in the later years of um, Anglo-Saxon history and English history as well. So we will have another look at it. Next week, we will continue with our look at the lives of children in medieval England. And I am enjoying this tremendously, so I do hope you are enjoying it also, and you will join me. See you then.